0: This is the Investor Mindset Podcast, and I'm Steven Pesavento. And for as long as I can remember, I've been obsessed with understanding how we can think better, how we can be better, and how we can do better. And each episode, we explore lessons on motivation and mindset from the most successful real estate investors and entrepreneurs in the nation. This idea between faith, having belief that everything's going to work out, and fear, worrying about everything not working out. And it's two sides of the spectrum. Obviously, it's a lot happier to live over here, believing in everything. But there's that piece in the middle that brings you farther out of that fear space into a place where you're comfortable. You have a solid understanding. And that really comes down to getting educated. Welcome back to the Investor Mindset Podcast. I'm your host, Steven Pessavento. And today in the studio, I've got a very special guest, Kirk Chisholm. How you doing today, Kirk?
1: Doing great. Thanks for having me on again, Stephen.
0: Yeah, glad to have you back. We had you on early when we had first launched the show, so we're well overdue to dive in. For those of you who don't know Kirk, he's a principal and wealth manager at Innovative Advisory Group who is an RIA. Um, He's been providing financial advice since 1999, and he is really creative when it comes to portfolio management, retirement investing, financial planning, and especially he's an expert when it comes to using self-directed IRAs to be able to invest in alternative assets. So we're going to dive into everything that you need to know when it comes to self-directing IRAs and some of the biggest things that people often trip over when they're doing that. With that said, Kirk, you ready to dive into it?
1: Let's do it. Let's dive right in.
0: So tell the audience a little bit about the world of financial advising and specifically how you really got into the space and what you do with your clients. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about
1: kind of my background because I think it'll give a little bit of color about how I got into the business and and why. So I started in the business in December of 99, which, you know, if you think about it, there really wasn't much of a worse time. I missed all of the early 2000s, mm-hmm. all the 80s, all that big run up that we had in the market since the you know, early 80s. And uh, pretty much started in the first three years, the business market dropped every year. So uh, that was a good introduction into the markets. And I think, you know, while you could say, wow, that must have been terrible. I look at it the other way. I say, this was great Mm -hmm. because what I learned was the value of risk management. And you know this, Stephen, because you talk about this a lot. The value of risk management is knowing how to not lose money. Most Mm -hmm. people focus on how to make money and Mm -hmm. they don't focus on how to not lose it. So our focus here at the firm is we have a risk management first philosophy, which is focus on risk management, take care of that. And then everything else is gravy because making money is not hard, right? It's, it's not easy, but it's not really hard. It's more, can you make sure you're not going to lose big if you can do that? And you know, you don't make a lot of money, that's fine. But if you lose money, it's so much harder to make it back. And it's much better just not to lose in the first place. So the, the first few years really colored that for me and pretty much the rest of my career. And of course, I lived through early 2000s when the tech bubble burst. We lived through 2008, which also was another one, which actually we were well-prepared for. We were we were out of the markets well, in a full year before the markets crashed. You know, So we were aware of that. And then you got all the other ones that happened since. You got 2017, you got 2020, uh, you got the early, I think it was 2011 when the flash crashed. I mean, we've had all these little, you know, bubbles popping here and there. And if you're surprised by them, it's because you don't really understand what your investments are. So mm-hmm. a lot of what we focus on is how to manage risk around any investment, whether it's traditional or alternative. And if you can do that right, then the world's your oyster. But the the hard part is doing that. And the best part is because no one else is doing it. You know, it it, it separates us as a firm because most yeah. people think, I'll just put money into a bunch of mutual funds and I'll be diversified. How'd that work for you last year? Didn't work very well, right? Well, that's because everything went down because everything got correlated. And um, and most people thought diversification works. It, it does most times. Um, you know, Stephen, you were just on my show and we were just talking about you know um, about this topic, but this, this concept of half-truths. Half-truth mm-hmm. is something that sounds true. It's intellectually sound. It's academically sound, but it's not true 100% of the time and that that 90 that 1% or 5% of the time that's where it's dangerous and if you're not prepared for that that's where it gets you into trouble so buy and hold is a great strategy when you're in a bull market right you know having yeah. a diversified portfolio of stocks and bonds is a good strategy unless it's 2022 or similar years where that sort of thing happens like you just have to understand the risk and if you do and you're okay with it then it's fine But I think most people just don't understand the risk to begin with.
0: So I think a lot of people don't understand the risk. We were talking a little bit about people investing into alternatives, looking at only what the projected return is rather than understanding what's the risk that's connected to that versus investing in another deal that might have a better risk to return ratio. What I'm curious about is how do we go about thinking about protecting ourselves from risk without going into the fear mode of not taking any action. Because what I find is a lot of folks that I talk to are very interested in taking back control of their investments, taking back control of their ability to be able to grow their wealth and taking back control of the ability to create income from their investments that really gives them the ability to do whatever they want, whenever they want. But there's also that fear that comes along with it that is really keeping people from actually taking action. So how do you go about addressing that?
1: That's a great question, Stephen. Uh, you know, I think one of the challenges I've seen is people typically are in one or two ends of the spectrum. They're either on the greed spectrum, which is how do I make the most money possible so I can keep up with my friends and brag about it to people that I don't really care about who don't know my financial situation, or in the other spectrum, which is I don't want to leave my house because I'm afraid that a bird's going to fall on my head. Like, you know, there's there's these two ends yeah. of the spectrum that you, you have to... You have to find a healthy balance, right? And you know, there's there's a few different concepts we use, but there's this concept I like, which we call fragility. I didn't come up with it, and this seemed to love did. But 2007, the markets were fragile, and we saw 2008 where they all imploded across the world because the markets were fragile. People didn't understand the risks they're taking; they're taking way too many risks, and they didn't understand them. And then, um, you know, and then things blew up, and people were like, what happened? Well, the other side of the spectrum is being anti-fragile, which is basically you took advantage of that and you made lots of money during two thousand eight. Most people didn't, but that that would be an example of anti-fragility. And in the middle, there's resilience. Now, resilience is um, a concept which I like to think about is how do you create a resilient portfolio? I think you know I've thought about this a lot over the last bunch of years, and what I've come down to is resilience is a mindset. It really comes down to how you think about it. You have to be. So think here's a good example. COVID COVID happened, right? It, it sucked like, you know, and no one escaped it unless you're sitting on a farm by yourself. Everyone got affected by COVID one way, shape or form or another, whether it's your kids stuck at home, you know, not playing with their friends or you're getting depressed because you can't go out or whatever it is. Like we all got affected in some way. Um, But if you were more resilient, if you were prepared mentally, not for COVID, but something like COVID, then you felt good about that and and you didn't like it, but you were just like, I'm in good shape. I'm going to be okay. Whereas most people, I mean, how many people have like less than a month's worth of savings in the bank? Some people have zero. I don't know how they got by. I really don't. But being resilient is being prepared for everything and not knowing what's going to happen, but being prepared for multiple scenarios. So we call it scenario-based thinking versus outcome-based thinking. So outcome-based thinking is, oh, it's going to be hot tomorrow, or the stock market's going to go up, or you know, like, oh, this is this one thing's going to happen, right? Like you're you're making an assumption like who's going to win the next election? Well, this person's going to win. Well, mm-hmm. that's scenario, that's outcome-based thinking. That's assuming that you know the future. Now, I don't know about you, Stephen. I don't have a crystal ball. I can't tell the future. Most people think they can because they do. I wish night. I
0: could, right?
1: Yeah, we wouldn't be talking. We own islands next to each other, hanging out, you know, you know, shooting <laughs> volleyballs back and forth, but like we're both working because we can't tell the future and no one else can either. Um, so the difference is, is most our, our brains work as um, outcome-based thinking computers. Now, the better way to look at it is scenario-based thinking. So what do we do if this happens? What do we do if this happens? What do we do if this happens? So like an election, right? The last presidential election. What do we do if Trump wins? What do we do if Biden wins. Or the third scenario, which was very possible at the time was what if it's unclear, right? What do we do? Like how do we react in the portfolio? How do we react with um, you know, somebody's household financials? Like how are we going to look at the situation and treat it differently? And because you look at those different scenarios, when one of them happens that you didn't expect, you're gonna be okay. So George Soros Mm -hmm. lost, I think it was like one or $2 billion by investing in the outcome that Hillary was gonna beat Trump, which of Mm -hmm. course didn't happen. And he was extremely wrong because he thought there's no way she's gonna lose. He was one of the more famous successful traders of our era. And he was clearly wrong. And he lost billions of dollars. And he obviously in that situation, I know him and I know his style and his styles like go all in, but, but like his style, like went against him because he didn't have another scenario in his back pocket. And I think for most investors, we don't have billions of dollars in the bank that we can afford to make a mistake. So we need to be really careful about how to handle it. So circling back to your question, Stephen, about how people, uh, work with not being uh, overwhelmed by fear fear is very normal it is a very human response to yeah. the unknown the easiest way to deal with fear is first educate yourself as much as possible but you know that's once you're educated you're you're aware of of the risk and reward and you can say okay i can make a logical decision here but mm-hmm. i think a lot of us are afraid because we don't know we're afraid of things we don't know right? I think of the concept of the void. You think about, you look back like hundreds or thousands of years, right? And people had different religions that we don't follow today, right? And we mm-hmm. had different concepts of magic, right? That we don't mm-hmm. believe in today. Well, magic as I forget who said it, but magic is basically science that we don't understand, right? Mm-hmm. So our human brains, if we don't understand something, we, we're afraid of it and it freaks us out So we fill that void with something else. It may not Mm -hmm. be true, but it may sound Mm -hmm. true enough to help us feel comfortable with that void. So, you know, I think a lot of religions strung up because people are like, what do we do when we die? Yeah, I don't know. Like, I'm fearful. What what happens if I die? But then, you know, people answered the question. I'm not saying religion's true Mm -hmm. or not. I'm just saying, like, conceptually, we've had hundreds of religions over history, and I don't know which ones are true, but... The point is, is when people have an answer to this void in their head, they feel better. So
0: So what's this idea between faith, having belief that everything's going to work out and fear, worrying about everything not working out. And it's two sides of the spectrum. Obviously, it's a lot happier to live over here, believing in everything. But there's that piece in the middle That brings you farther out of that fear space into a place where you're comfortable, you have a solid understanding, and that really comes down to getting educated, getting around the right people, having the right advisors, having people that you can trust, but not trusting them blindly, trusting them because you have that solid understanding that gives you that feeling of comfortable and confidence that will actually lead you to uh, being able to take action despite being fearful that maybe the outcome will go against you.
1: Yeah, no, I I totally agree. I I think, you know, the, the fear factor is basically our human brains shutting us down, right? It shuts Mm -hmm. down the executive function and puts us into fight or flight mode, which means that we stop thinking, we start reacting and reacting is fine. If you have good um, if you set up good habits, right? Like if a tiger jumps out, you're going to run, right? That's that's not something you thought about, but your body's going to be like, I'm getting the heck out of here, right? Mm. And that's more primal. But I think in our lives, if we structure our lives with good habits and our brain shuts down, so th- it is a good example, actually, because the military talks about this a lot, right? They overtrain the military in in battle situations. So when you come upon the situation, your brain doesn't shut down. Because I say charge the hill and people are shooting guns. You're like, no, no, I'm good. I'm good right here. I, I, I'm not familiar with that. But if you're accustomed to charging that hill uh, under gunfire, then you're going to do it because you're gonna say, I, I've been here before. I've I practiced this. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do it, which is why they do it over and over and over again. Athletes do it. Soldiers do it. We need to do it. Like yeah. we as people don't do it in our lives, but it's such an important framework to think about how you can get over
0: this, this fear factor. There's There's a lot of tools. Yeah. That's such a good point. It's that practice over and over again that makes you comfortable. And when it comes to money, when it comes to investing, a lot of people they haven't really worked that muscle. They've gone with the, "Oh, I'm going to follow the traditional path because that's the only thing I've ever known." And I haven't yet built the muscle in any other sector or space. And so that actually leads us into something that you're an absolute expert at in the self-directed IRA space. You know, we Uh, at Von Finch, we have a ton of clients who are investing using their self-directed IRA. And a lot of people, when they first come to outside of the traditional world, they don't even realize that it's possible. And they don't really have an understanding or a creative vision of where that money can be invested and what that can actually do for them. So I'd love it if you'd kind of share a little bit about what are some of the the common challenges that people face when they're coming from that traditional world moving into the world of self, self-directing IRAs and what are some of the strategies that they can actually apply that will allow them to, you know, take back control of their portfolio?
1: Yeah, I'm glad you asked that, Steven. So the self-directed IRAs, we st- we started our company in 2008. We um, one of the one of the reasons we did is cuz we wanted to specialize in this area. Now, a self-directed IRA, the term itself is a little misleading because all IRAs are self-directed, but the term is typically used to describe an IRA that can invest outside of the stock market. And uh, there are some limitations, although not many. So Mm -hmm. the idea is you can invest in virtually anything with your retirement account. Most people think you're limited to stocks, bonds, and mutual funds, but Mm -hmm. you're not. You can, the IRS doesn't tell you what you can invest in. They tell you what you cannot invest in. It'll technically the internal revenue code, not the IRS. But the, um, so basically you cannot in, invest in life insurance on yourself. You cannot invest in S-Corps and you cannot invest in collectibles. Virtually everything else you can invest in, horses, houses, private companies, crypto, gold, whatever you want, airspace rights. I mean, the, the reason we got in this space is it's so exciting. There's so many opportunities everywhere we find new ones all the time. You know, there's there's people buying fishing rights, getting 80% a year, people doing like, you know, tax liens with, you know, double digit returns and horses with triple digit returns. I mean, there's there's ridiculous returns out there, but I wouldn't say, hey, well, let's invest in horses because Kirk just said triple digit returns. Don't do that. Um <laughs> the the situation I'm talking about was a client who's very specifically and understands dressage horses buys them from Europe, trains them up and sells them to really, really rich people and makes Mm. a good return. But this is what he does for a living. Mm -hmm. So I want to caveat this. Yeah, I want to caveat this because self-directed IRAs are amazing. It's one of the coolest tax benefits that we have as investors if you use it properly. Mm -hmm. However, if you're doing it because it's a cool and sexy thing, then you're missing the boat, right? Mitt Romney has over $100 million in his IRA. Peter Thiel has over a billion dollars in his Roth IRA. He never has to pay taxes on that. Now, these are people who understood how to use it, how how to differentiate it and separate it from the rest of their investments and allow it to compound, which is great. But they did it doing things that they know. Peter Thiel invested in Facebook for pennies on the dollar and a lot of other companies, PayPal and a few other through his IRAs. He doesn't need the money. He's, he's making tons of it. Now it's all tax sheltered, But mm-hmm. um, if I just went up to Peter Thiel and said, hey, Peter, I got this cool thing. You should put your money in. He's not going to be like, oh, OK, let me just put my IRA in there. Like he's yeah. he's doing only what he knows. You know, Warren Buffett talks about this. You've got Peter Lynch talks about it. Um, but it it is absolutely amazing it, to, to understand that if you're creative and you're, you're thoughtful about it, you can really use it to your benefit. So that's why we got into it because it's it's just this unique thing, you know, a lot of people the most common assets real estate or real estate related investments because that's what people know and it's you can always find deals if you're you know, if you're really diligent and you're, you know, you're tenacious and out there looking for deals, you can find deals all the time, just sometimes it's harder than others.
0: And so when you're if you know, we're speaking to folks both that have experience doing this and those who don't. So for those who have yet to do that, you go, you set up a self-directed IRA, you have to work with a custodian. Once you've got some of those baseline pieces in place, what are some of the things that you need to watch out for in order to stay compliant with those regulations on making sure you're investing in the right things and you're not investing in the wrong things so that you don't end up, you know, breaking the, uh, the IRA.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a good point. So one of the things, I mean, the first thing which you, you, you kind of, um, you skip past, but it's a really important point is finding the right custodian. Mm-hmm. So finding the right custodian is not easy, right? If you're buying, if you have a stock portfolio, you're probably thinking, should I go with Schwab or TD or Fidelity or E-Trade or you know, yeah. E-Trade not around anymore. But anyway, you're like, which one do I do? Well, they're all the same. So it really doesn't matter which one you do. It's just a personal preference. But with self-directed IRA custodians, every single one of them is different. The fees are different. What they allow is different. The service is different. All of them are different. So you need to do your due diligence there. That's the first thing I would say. And, and that's we've actually created a course around that because it's so hard to do. Mm. Um, now, uh, the second piece is is you know what should people be careful of? You have to make sure you're not creating prohibited transactions. Now this comes from abiding by the rules. Now one of the things I get the most is people call us up and be like, "Hey, I want to do this this really cool thing in my IRA." I'm like, mm-hmm. no, that's not allowed. But what if I do it this way? I'm like, no, no, you're not understanding. What you're saying is not allowed. Like, you, you, yeah. there are exceptions. To, so there's rules. There's exceptions to those rules, and there's exceptions to those exceptions. <laughs> we know them all. But sometimes people come to us and they're very clearly trying to take money out of their retirement account. Uh, and finding a way to circumvent the IRS. Let me tell you, the IRS is smarter than you. So whatever you think you've come up with as a solution, it's not a solution. The IRS has figured it out and they will catch you. So don't do stupid things with your IRA. I'll just put that out there. Now, that being said, there's a lot of cool things you can do with it. But the things you have to worry about is, so there's disqualified persons, which is basically you, your spouse, your kids, your grandkids, great grandkids, your parents, Grandparents, great grandparents. So the lineal uh, ascendants and descendants are uh, disqualified persons, which means you cannot do business with them. So, for example, if you want a piece of real estate, you cannot sell that real estate into your IRA. You cannot have your IRAs real estate sell it to you. You can have Mm -hmm. it distributed to you, which is a you know taxable event. You can do that, but Mm -hmm. you can't sell it. So Mm -hmm. the idea is a lot of people are trying to you know use some trying to circumvent the rules. You can't do it that way. There are exceptions though. Brothers or sisters, cousins, yep. aunts and uncles. Those are exceptions. You can do business with them, right? So there's ways that you can you can um, use them as, as a way to facilitate transactions. But I will tell you this, if you think you found a way, the intention is really important. So for example, mm-hmm. I'll give you an example of something that I've heard before, which is you're gonna get you know in trouble for. Oh, well, I can't sell... This this real estate to my IRA, so I'm going to sell it to my uncle, and he's going to sell it to my IRA. No, the IRS Mm -hmm. is going to say your intention was always to do that, so they're going to come back and say no, that's that's disqualified, and you're going to owe taxes and penalties and all that. So the danger of screwing up the IRA, I just want to be clear: the danger of screwing up the IRA is not the fact that they're going to catch you and you're going to have to you know pay taxes on the distribution, right? So let's say a hundred thousand dollar IRA. You want to take a, you know, you you buy a $50,000 property. Oh, well, I have to pay taxes on $50,000. No. The mm-hmm. problem is that the IRS doesn't catch you right away. They catch you six or seven years later, mm-hmm. which means that not only did you take a distribution six or seven years ago, but you didn't tell them about it. So that means you owe penalties and interest and all this other stuff. So at a certain point, you can pretty much just give up your entire IRA because mm-hmm. that's how much you're going to owe. I've seen that happen. Uh, not from us, but I, I've we've been brought on to help uh, people through stuff, and sometimes there's nothing you can do, but uh, that happens. So you just have to be really careful. But the point is, is there's so many things you can do. You don't need to break the rules. There, there's so many ways to handle it and do it the right way. Disqualified persons, prohibited transactions. Um, you know, you just have to you have to treat the IRA like it's the uh, the neighbor in your street you hate. You know, you're not going to loan them your lawnmower. You're not going to loan them money. You're not going to fix their house for free. They're not going to do the same for you. It's completely arm's length. You have to keep it arm's length with the transactions. And if you do that, there's a lot of things you can do that are just really magical with the tax benefits that you can use it for.
0: And so talk us through like a traditional, you know, some of the, the normal things you're seeing outside, you know, outside of these crazy outside the box ideas, right? So someone's going to take a, they're going to invest passively into um, uh, a real estate offering. They're going to you know, take a hundred thousand dollars and they're going to invest it. And that project's going to be for five years. And they're, they're a limited partner on that. How do they go about doing that? And then what is the benefit that they receive and why would they want to do this over just leaving the money in the traditional market?
1: So the, how you do it is going to depend on the structure. So if you're just buying a rental property, think of it this way, you don't own the rental property, your IRA does. Yeah. So all of the processes that you're going to go through to invest are effectively the same, whether it's you or the IRA. The difference is that you are not signing any documents. You are not putting down deposits. The IRA is pointing. So let's say you want to buy a real estate property, right? You see this neighbor's house, you're like, yeah, I'm going to give an offer. And put down a hundred bucks. The IRA has to put down a hundred bucks, and the IRA has to sign the offer. So yeah. technically it's the custodian because the IRA can't do it. So the custodian signs the offer and you give it to the uh to the neighbor and they say yes or no. If they say yes, then the process goes through the same. The difference is the IRA or the custodian is signing in uh, for the IRA, and any money coming out goes to the uh, the other party, and then the ownership of the property goes into the IRA. So effectively, you're swapping, say this is the IRA and this is the, you know, the other person, you're swapping property for money. So the IRA, yeah. money goes to the other person, the property goes in there. So it's always held inside, so it's not taxed. And then once you, uh, once you start earning income, the income goes into the IRA, any expenses come out of the IRA to go into it. So if you wanted to, let's say, buy a rental property for 100,000 you have 110,000 in your IRA and you have to you have to fix a roof for 20k you're in trouble because you don't have enough yeah. money so you have to be aware of any other needs and make sure you have enough cash cushion to do it or have private money hard money that you could borrow if you need to but effectively any money going into it comes from the IRA any money coming out of it, it goes back into it so effectively it's your bank account if you will Um, your your LLC bank account uh, for that. The IRA
0: is essentially like a separate person and you can't do anything for that separate person. The IRA has to do everything, has to be responsible for funding it, signing the documents. You can never touch it physically with your dollars or your work product.
1: Yeah, correct. And that's actually an interesting, interesting point we should touch on, which is the concept of sweat equity. So you mentioned before about things you can't do. So sweat equity is another piece of it. So let's say you own this rental property and, and the the toilet breaks. Now, any real estate investor I've ever met will say, well, I'm not paying someone to do that. I'll go do it myself, even though it's two in the morning and it's negative 10 degrees. I'm going to go do it. Save myself. So, j-
0: just so just so everyone knows, I think those people are crazy. That is absolutely <laughs> <I do too. laughs> not me or anything I would recommend. But there's a lot of people out there who are so afraid of spending a little bit of money. That they're uh they're doing all the work. But so yeah. in that scenario.
1: But that's a real estate investor mindset. It's very common. Um, totally. so you know, somebody like that is not gonna like this because they're gonna say, well, Yeah, but I'm not gonna pay someone to do that work when I can do it myself. Well, no, you can't do it yourself because the IRS considers that sweat equity. Now, the reason that they disqualify that is how are they gonna value that? They're gonna take yeah. your word for it. You know, you could say it was worth a thousand dollars an hour a dollar an hour, depending on what you want to do. There's no qualifier. So the IRS just, IRS just says you can't do that. So you can't do that, but you can hire people. You can do what's called a settler function. So you can hire somebody to fix it. You can pay the bills. You can hire a property manager. You can do things that are like administrative in, in sense. Um, I always recommend people get a property manager so it's clean. And then you don't yeah. have to worry about the IRS. You just say, you know what? We have property manager. they take care of it all and whatever um, that's the clean way to deal with it. And then you don't, then you're not tempted to kind of like, eh, I got to go check this out. I got to go do this. Just let someone else deal with it. And then you don't have to worry about it.
0: So, but, but, um, but in, but in, in whole, I mean, you're talking about somebody going and buying a rental property and being an active manager, but whether you're being an active manager, which you can't do except this settler function that you're talking about, or you're investing passively, the, The process for doing that is the IRA itself is going to be the one who signs all the documents. They're going to sign the purchase agreement if you're buying it directly, or they're going to sign the PPM if you're investing into a private placement investment offering. And all those dollars are never going to come back to you physically. They're going to go instead into this uh, custodian to directly to the IRA. um, And you that's the benefit, but it sounds like a lot of work, Kirk. Like when you talk through this and you say it's complicated and you tell us that, you know, there's all these pieces and you can't do all this stuff and you can do this stuff. Like, why would people want to go through the trouble of doing this? Like, why would they want to learn enough about Mm self-directed IRA investing to, you know, start deploying capital from that perspective?
1: That's a good question. I, I, I think frankly, for a lot of people, it's not the right thing. You know, I'm just going to be honest, it's, um, you know, if you go and buy a a share of stock on the stock exchange through like, you know, TD Ameritrade, it's easy. You just click a button. You know, if you want to buy a horse, you have to get a passport for the horse. You got to do all this. I mean, you got to go through like, you know, hoops and I mean, it's, it's hard, right? Buying real estate's hard inside an IRA, but, you know, frankly, buying real estate anyway is hard. So it's really not that much different. I think the challenge for most people is not the steps that they have to do. The challenge for most people is understanding what to do and what not to Mm -hmm. do. That's the challenge Mm -hmm. because all of the rules are the same for stock and for real estate. The difference is you just don't see them with the stock because they're Mm all easily compressed into some algorithm at TD Ameritrade. Now you're actually seeing the rules in effect. So as long as you stay by the rules, it's really not that hard but I think people overcomplicate it. And I'll I'll be frank with you that if you've never heard of this before and you're going to do it yourself, it's going to take you like six to nine months to figure it out. So when I started in, I think it was 03, 04, somewhere around there, um, actually understanding I found out about them because I had a client come to me and say, I want to do this. I'm like, I never heard of that. Um and i this is before the internet this is you know before uh before the internet was a big thing i think google was just going public around there for reference so the internet wasn't really a thing like it is today so it's hard to find information so i had to literally call up these custodians and and talk to them for like hours asking them questions there was like one single book yeah. that existed it's just hard it's easier now our whole website is designed to give people free information so they can go on yeah. their way and do it but it's um it's not for everybody. And I think what happens is a lot of people, what's the,
0: what let's cut, let's cut to it. What's the benefit? Why are people going to do this Kirk? Cause you're making it sound really complicated and I've personally gone through it. And I think it's a little bit simpler than you're making out. Like there's a million complicated ways to do it. And especially if you're going to try to actively operate real estate or, you know, you know, you're going to be the person who's going to go out and buy horses and do all that stuff. Like that's complicated stuff. But if you're like, Hey, I understand investing in private placements. I understand how to sign PPMs. I understand how to vet a deal. I at least understand the the passive side of it. And I'm going to go out and do it through my IRA. As long as you have the right people around you, as long as you have the right custodian or the right advisors, it's very approachable, right? It's very doable when you have the right people to support you.
1: Yeah, it is very doable. And I, and I, I just have to kind of like throw that out there because I, I love – the idea of doing this. And I think a lot of people get, um, get excited about the idea of doing it, but the actual practical nature is just different, right? It's, it's not like clicking a button. So I, I always kind of talk about it because I think it's important for people to understand because that's how people, that's how people lose money, right? They're like, Oh, I'm just going to go do this simple thing and it'll be easy. No, it's, it's, you you need to understand what you're doing. Or like you said, have a team, have people in place that can help you with Yes, But that being said, There's a reason why Peter, like people like Peter Thiel, have a billion dollars in his IRA. So, did you know there's there's 318 people in the U.S. who have IRAs over uh, 20 million dollars? You know what the average balance of those 318 people is? What? 257 million dollars. Wow. Yeah, that's the average. So there's people with 20 million and there's people with a lot more. And you know, I already know of two people that have over a billion dollars in a Roth IRA or an IRA. I don't know about the second one. So the point is, is this didn't happen because they were Warren Buffett and they invested and they hoped it went up and compounded over time. This happened because people used the vehicle and found ways to legally right uh find ways to uh leverage the returns. So I can tell you some examples that are absolutely amazing, but I'll give you some simple examples from real estate investors. Let's say I see this my neighbor's property. Let's say it's worth $200,000. And you know, he's not able to sell it and say hey buddy, um I'll buy it for you for 50. I know this example is ridiculous, but I'll buy a few for 50. He's like, I need to get out of here. I'll, I'll sell it to you for 50 today. Okay, done. We'll sell it today for 50,000. Now I know it's worth 200 and maybe I decide, you know what? I want to move this quickly. So I'm going to offload this to somebody for 120,000, right? Make make a quick mm-hmm. 70K and I'm done, right? You guys have flippers. I'm sure you know plenty of flippers. Well, yeah. let's, say I use, let's say I put $1,000 down to lock in that deal. And then that $1,000 turns into 70k. Yeah. That's pretty good return, isn't it? Totally, and I do that yeah. in a Roth IRA. I just made tax-free 70k that you can't do any any other way. That's Ooh. magic, right? And that's just real estate. You could do that with so many other investments, but the magic is in the creativity and the I mean I I have clients that make between 700 and 1300% returns a year. And that's what they do but they're okay. able to to use what they do and leverage it and they make really good money so, so I, I think
0: this is I think this is the interesting thing there's really like two two versions there's like the easy button somebody's got their money tied up in Wall Street they realize they want to diversify out they decide hey I want to get into some kind of investment opportunities I'm not going to be the active manager I'm gonna go and I understand how to do it with cash. There's a couple more hoops to jump through, but I get a good custodian or a good advisor and they help me get into that. Now I'm making you know 10 to 15 or 20% annual returns in my IRA. So I'm growing it faster than I would maybe in the stock market if I, I just want to get my money out. But the other way, the thing you're really alluding to, the thing you're really underlying underlining for the audience here is that if you understand this tool, and you really need to become a specialist in using this tool, it can be a vehicle of its own for creating great wealth and for being able to create tax-free wealth if you're doing it within a Roth IRA. If it's in a regular IRA, you're deferring it, you're getting that benefit of compounding, you're not paying taxes on, on that while it's compounding. Um, of course, you have to pay a distribution, but more importantly, you can use this tool to then go out and find unique strategies that you can create outsized returns by putting out a smaller amount of money and getting a, a huge profit back.
1: A lot of people think it is, oh, the self-directed IRA, that's the end goal. No, the self-directed IRA is the tool that gets yeah. you to the end goal. It, yeah. You know, I could use a self-directed IRA, I could use an opportunity zone, I could use... 50 other tools that we have at our disposal. There's some cool ones, which I could tell you about after the show that are really interesting. But there's so many tools out there that you can use, but you use them in the in the manner that they're meant to be used. I'm not trying to yes. put a square peg in a round hole, right? Like this is why when you know when we do self-directed IRAs, we're not selling self-directed IRAs. I don't care if you use one or not. What I care about is is this a good tool for you? If you want to buy this cool and interesting thing and you want to flip it or you want to you want to do it in an IRA great. We're going to run the numbers with you and we're going to say this makes perfect sense or you know what this really doesn't make sense, it's going to be too expensive. You should you should use another way, right? Because if you do it in an IRA for real estate, there's some great benefits, but also, you know, real estate is a tax-advantaged vehicle to begin with. So you're kind of totally. losing that to some degree. So you, so you just have to weigh it and just say, what is the end result? Does it make sense? A lot of times it does, but you still have to run the math.
0: Yeah. I like, I like this as an understanding because I think when we shift when we shift away our view that self-directed IRA is the end goal. Hey, I'm going to get this set up and then I'm set. Right. Now I can make investments from it. That's just really step one. And everyone can stop at step one. They can just use the tool in the most basic way. But if you really dive into it and you start understanding that there is actually so many more features and benefits that are available when I learn to be a specialist with this tool, when I learn how to really carve out my path, I can do it really effectively with a self-directed IRA that maybe I didn't even realize when I thought it was just this little one thing that allowed me to take money out of the market and put it into, you know, real assets.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's um, like I said, it's a great vehicle. I, I love, <clears throat> I love the, um, shall I put it? I, I, I love the creativity of it. Right. And I think that the best things that I've seen have come from creativity. I mean, you could put a piece of real estate. That's great. But the creativity, what I've seen people do is just, um, it's it's where it's where the fun is for me. I mean, I could do these all day long, but seeing yeah. somebody make eighty percent returns on fishing rights, it's or so cool. or yeah, I mean, just like the cool stuff that I see, it's like if you. And these are the fun calls again. Can I do this? Like, Ooh, this'll be fun. Like I haven't thought of
0: this. It's almost like a hobby in itself, like finding unique strategies that you can do within the IRA. So I feel like there's going to, you know, we obviously, I think we should, we should dive even deeper into this at some point, really kind of like go through a bunch of examples of unique case studies for those folks who want to, they want to learn more about this. They want to understand what's the best place for them to learn more from a resource perspective and how should they, you know, take action on this if they want to start understanding how to leverage this for themselves?
1: Yeah. So the best way, I mean, we created uh, on our website, we have a lot of free resources at InnovativeWealth.com. Uh, if you just go to the self-directed IRA portion, um, there's a ton of resources there. Pretty much anything you need to know is there. It'll get you started in the right path. Um, there's a whole bunch of custodians listed there. So you can kind of at least, you, you'll at least know where to start. You know, once you start digging deeper, depending on how deep you want to go down the rabbit hole, um, you know, you can do it yourself or you can contact us if you need help. Um, you know, we're really for the people who are, you know, we need it done for us. We don't have the time. We don't have the interest. We don't have the the expertise. You know, do it for us. If you're a do it yourselfer the website's free, go to the website, get all the free resources. I hope you do. I, I really, truly want the industry to be clean. There's the Wild West out there. You're getting a lot of people out there. that are just, you know, um, let's just say less than ethical. I'm the
0: anti do it yourself or don't do it yourself. (laughs) Hire experts in every part of your life. And that way you've got the smartest people making sure you're moving down the fastest path. So, Kirk, if they want to get in touch with you, how can they find your what's that website URL?
1: I'm easy to find. Honestly, I just Google my name. I'm everywhere. But if you go to innovativewealth.com, uh, you can go to the website. You can find out more about self-directed. You can find me there. Also, I have a, a podcast, which Steven uh, has been on recently, uh, Money Tree Investing. I'm there every week. So I'm really easy to find. Just reach out. I'm on LinkedIn pretty much
0: every day as well. So um, just reach out. We'll We'll chat. Awesome. Well, definitely some really interesting stuff. Thanks so much for joining us, Kirk. And uh, I encourage people to dive a little bit deeper if this has sparked some interest for you, whether you're going to go the simple path or you're going to go and follow in Peter Thiel's footsteps and create a billion dollars tax-free, you know, it's possible and you can do it. So thanks so much. And uh, we'll see you on the next episode. Great.
1: Thanks for having me on.
0: Today's episode is sponsored by Von Finch Capital. If you're interested in investing alongside me in the same type of real estate opportunities that I personally invest in, then head over to Von Finch Capital and join their private investor network. You can do so at vonfinch.com invest. Join me on that next deal. And I look forward to seeing you on the inside. Thank you for listening to the Investor Mindset Podcast. If you like what you heard, make sure to rate, review, subscribe, and share it with a friend.